But when they see a Christian engaging in self-sacrificial generosity to a neighbor, especially a stranger, that is something that you can't deny the power of. That's what converted the pagans. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode nine of Every Knee Shall Bow. I'm your host, Michael Gomer Gormley. I almost call myself Joseph. I don't think people need to know my middle name. And I am joined by Dave. Wish you were here, Van Vickle. How you doing, Dave? I wish I was in Houston, too. It's getting freezing here in Pittsburgh again. Uh, it is 34 degrees, good sir. Oh, really? Okay, so we're, we're about the same right now. It is awful. I had the air conditioning on two days ago. Last night, I walked up the stairs. I'm like, it is cold, and I turned the heat on. Thank God I did. 34 degrees. So I have to tell you that one of my favorite things is when I get a recommendation for a new book, and all three of the books last week were new to me, so... I ordered them. What, what, what books were they? I don't even remember. Father Spitzer's book. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Timothy Keller's book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you, and then you talked about Mere Christianity. I Not that I didn't have Mere Christianity, but I just pulled it off the shelf to read again. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's I, you know, I, Sometimes you forget. You know, you, you fall in love with an author, and then sometimes you forget. He's just so excellent. Yeah. So. C.S. Lewis has this line that kills me where he says, if you've only read a book once, you haven't read that book. <laughs> I'm like, right, right. But it applies right. to his book. So I've, I know I've read all of his books because I've read all of his books more than once. Yeah. So uh, and speaking of which, so let's do some follow up for ourselves today uh, and just kind of break open the take fives and what they've been uh, what they've done for you. Because one of the things that we want to do is not sit here and tell you how to live your life, but also to do to take this journey along with you. Now, I, I know people have heard that Dave every week reads through an entire gospel, which is one of our take fives, you know. Um, different aspects and things. I spend a lot of my morning prayer just pouring over the letters of St. Paul. Like that's a big deal for me right. in my spiritual life. But this last uh, this last week, um, so we had a handful of really challenging take fives. Introduce yourself to someone at the parish, pray for your staff, read 2 Timothy 2, read the in brief of the catechism on ecclesial dimension of faith. Um, and start to organize your testimony along the steps of the kerygma. Dave, how how long have you been writing down your kerygma? Your excuse me, your testimony. Um, I think the first time I ever delivered my testimony, I was 16 years old, and I'm 35 now. So, I I probably look at it seriously once a year. You know, I've been doing it for a long time, but like you know, for different events, I I I'll sit down and kind of look at different aspects of it. I also, you know, will reflect, you know, even deeper into like, you know, the parts of my past and stuff like that. So it does change over time. Uh, you know, like people who people joke around Pittsburgh because they've all heard my testimony in like the Dave's a speaker mode. Yeah. Where it's like the same jokes, the same cadence <laughs> and stuff like that, you know, because when it's a huge crowd, I get nervous. Right. And and go back to like my you know, what I know well, yeah. but I'm always trying to adapt it for different conversations and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I work on a lot. What about you? Uh, so I have one, my, my main form of my testimony, uh, focuses, I guess I, I, I should say I have two testimonies depending on the audience. Testimony number one is when I'm speaking to general Catholic population, especially those, which is relevant for today's topic, um, who are on the margins of the church, especially in regards to like its relationship between science and religion, faith and reason. So I, I talk about a little bit of my background with that and my struggle, my intellectual struggles with the faith. But the other one is relational. And I tell the story of uh, 
how God brought me through the breakup of my girlfriend and then the subsequent winning her back. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, I've heard that one. Uh with my now wife. And so it's it's a crazy story. Um, but it spans a huge part of my Catholic spiritual life about trusting in God and even more so self-discipline and <laughs> surrender and all these different things. So it really does depend. So that that's one of the big the big things with our testimonies is as we get older, our our rear view mirror gets clearer. Right. At, at least it can. And um we can look at those events with new eyes. You know, one thing I I I do just about almost weekly, I'd say, is I Google how to give your testimony all the time. Really? And and see if I find like new tips and stuff like that, you know. Oh, that's interesting. Because it, you know, just always always trying to refine, refine, yeah. refine, refine. You know, one great uh, one great method I heard that I thought was very simple and it could be very effective for Christians who really know their Bible, uh, who are spending time in the Word of God. They call it the three story method, where you tell God's story, right? You tell your story, and you invite them to tell their story right right so it's just it's just like a very easy way to like okay well this is what this is what scripture talks about and this is how it applies in my life and my conversion and this is how it can help you, you yeah know, kind of thing right so, uh yeah i i like that all those you know yeah and you know what's really good for this stuff is reading beginner books oh yeah oh yeah i yeah, was yeah. at uh steubenville i was at franciscan and i was getting my graduate degree and i was reading a book by dr peter craft and uh fundamentals of the faith great book and a person came up to me and they're like, you're in graduate theology. And, you know, you, I have all these like, grad philosophy classes. Also, he's like, what are you doing reading this? Essentially a children's book. You know, he's a little demeaning. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to go into ministry full time. I don't see my future in academia. And there is nothing like someone like Dr. Peter Kraft or C.S. Lewis. Right. To constantly remind me how to refine concepts for beginners. Yeah. And. You know, and one of the things is you learn so much when people state things so simply. Yeah. And so, yeah, I always encourage people to do that. So, so I read the, I read the Baltimore Catechism all the time for that reason. Actually, this whole week has been about trying to find pithy statements on the different, you know, things that I'll be talking about. So it's, it's been kind of a journey this week of trying to go back to the basics. How do people explain it better than I do right now? You know? Yeah. Cause those pithy statements are memorable. They're portable, right? right. right? They stick right. with you. That's what makes Matthew Kelly so popular, right? He says like, he'll pick one statement, say like seven times in his talk. It drives me nuts, but other people, <laughs> they remember that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one interesting thing. So I came up with, I think are my two most pithy statements. You ready for this? <laughs> okay. Okay. Father Mike Schmidt stole this, the first one from me. I don't think he cared for my second one, but he stole the first one from me. Here we go. Oh, I mean, okay. He attributed it to me, but still. Uh, we were, as Catholics, we were never really taught how to pray, only how to repeat. Oh, okay. And when I say that, so I always say that within the context of teaching people how to pray, how to do memorized prayer, how to do vocal prayer, how to do mental prayer. And when I tell them that, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'm usually speaking to audiences that don't have a prayer right. life. So for them, their touch point is like the mass of the rose. I totally get it. Yeah. And then my other one, when I'm talking about uh, the practice of frequent confession is, as Catholics, we were never really taught how to repent, only how to go to confession. Uh, and that that whole thing is specifically speaking on how interior repentance should drive you to the confession. Right. So the Protestants are actually right in a way when they say, well, I go directly to God, you go to a priest, 
some Catholics are just going to a priest. Right. You know, sure. like they're not treating it like a sacrament. Yeah. They're kind of treating it like a magical car wash. So last week, five practical tips. What was the one you struggled with the most? Uh, the struggle with the most was organizing my testimony along the steps of the kerygma. I mean, I already have my. Well, yeah, I mean, that's hard. That's like big boy evangelization <laughs> stuff for sure, you know. It is. That's it that's is. that's serious. Yeah, yeah, but the easiest one, the one that actually took over my brain was reading the one the one that I suggested was read Second Timothy two. Oh, okay. I ended yeah. up reading all of Second Timothy. It's only four chapters. I I probably read it ten times. Oh wow! And I have it all marked up. I have it. Uh, I use an online thing called the Bible BibleGateway.com. Oh, so do I. But I have it all marked up and highlighted. And uh, I was bringing quotes into it. I'm actually going to use a quote for today's episode. It, it's pretty powerful. Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, so, so the pray for your parish, the staff, of your parish all week long. Yeah. So I already do that. But so, so what I decided is like, well, I'm going to let them know that I'm praying for them. Oh, there you go. And it was super weird and awkward. <laughs> it, it, it did not go all that. Uh, way. So that was, why, that was why, why didn't it go? Yeah. Well, people were just like, Oh, okay. Is everything okay? Oh. I was like, yeah, just, just praying for you. You know, <laughs> like, you know. Is, is everything okay? Did God tell you something about me? Right, exactly. That's exactly. You just lean in and you go, I know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, let me just say this real quick. You you told them that you were praying with them. So one of the things that I did this week was I just prayed with them. Oh, cool. And so, okay. um, at, you know, here in Texas, we are kind of reeling from the list of priests who have been credibly accused for the, since 1950. And a lot of people have mixed reactions about the whole list being even released. It, it's really interesting. Um, but one of the things is a, a new scandal has come out yet again, and Pope Francis has talked about this reality of women's religious orders and women being abused in them. Yeah. And uh, m me and a handful of people were talking, and we just started, like, getting super cynical and depressed. And then I was like, hey, guys, can we pray together for this so that we don't become that cynical guy and all this stuff? And so it's been cool. So there's been about three times when different staff members, I was like, I do, I do pray for these people, but I want to pray with them. And so, yeah, that was my my take five takeaway. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's 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 good stuff. Hey, we had some uh, some questions that we got to respond to. Yeah, we did. Uh, yeah, we cool. Did. So the first one was uh, a listener who said he's getting a lot out of this, but he has a question about apologetics and their role in evangelization. And uh, I, you know, I this is interesting. We, we will have to talk about it. I my experience has been this apologetics. Obviously, um, if you or if you don't know, it's not obvious. Um, does not mean the art of apologizing. It means the art of <laughs> of defending the Catholic faith, uh, or defending the existence of God, um, uh, the apologia, right? Uh, and so what we're talking about is, you know, the different proofs from scripture, from philosophy about, uh, why we believe what we believe. Right. And my, my experience in evangelization has been this and, and Gomer, you're, you're, I mean, you are an apologist in a sense. I, I mean, at least I would say you're an accomplished apologist. So, um, you know, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts, but usually it, it apologetics plays two roles or it comes up in two different ways in evangelization. Either someone is seeking, right? And they, they have these questions. They're curious about all this stuff and they come to you and say, look, this is, this is what I'm struggling with right now. I really want this, but I'm struggling with this part of the faith. And they just kind of front load it, right? That's the first question they kind of ask you. They know maybe that you're yeah. an authority or something. The other thing is later on in, in the relationship, they might bring up all kinds of objections to the faith, but they're very vitriolic about it, right? They kind of make fun of it, kind of poke fun of it. And I never, ever answer those 
with evangel uh, with apologetics. I wait until the trust is built, until the the you know the guard is down, yeah. and then I'll say, you know, I know you had some hurdles about the church in the beginning. What what let's let's make a list. Let's go through them one by one, and just work through these. But I always wait until the real the actual dialogue can take place because I think you know the the uh, the vitriol the kind of like you know what do you say here's what I say what do you say here's what I say it it just it very rarely comes comes about fruitfully in evangelization. Yeah, I think when I was young, I collapsed evangelization and apologetics. So my goal. Oh yeah, everyone did. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the I, whole world did. Right, and I came of age in the new Catholic apologetics movement. So Carl Keating's book, uh, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Oh, yeah, saved uh, my was, life. Yeah, right, right. Uh, Doctor Scott Hahn's conversion tape, his <laughs> cassette tape, was heard very often in my house. Um, Patrick Madrid, I used to go to, when I was in high school, I used to go to Patrick Madrid conferences, defend the faith, all that stuff. And it was very easy for me to confuse arguing about church teaching from, uh, I, I would confuse that with proposing Christ for faith. And one of the big things is now that I can clearly see a difference between that initial proclamation of what the gospel is and apologetics, um, St. Paul talks about don't have in Second Timothy don't have disputes, useless disputes over words, and you can tell there was some ongoing, you know, nitpicky technical fight that was happening in the local church there. But um, I, I find that it is very easy in our age today to get argumentative instead of getting to first principles, getting back to the basics. And the basics when we're talking about the faith is Jesus Christ. Right. And what he did, God loved me and Christ died for right. me, right? This understanding of trying to win arguments first, the, the beautiful thing about apologetics is it can clear the way for the gospel to be proposed. So that's one thing in the beginning. Or um, it can show someone that if you do it lovingly, right? St. Peter in First Peter chapter 3, when he talks, when we introduce this idea, always be ready to have... Um, a defense for the hope that is within you, an explanation for the hope that is within you, um, but do so with gentleness and reverence, that when you actually sit with someone and carefully work through their problems, even if it's right. totally apologetic, um, one of the things is you're you're engaging with them and you're showing them that, like you're building trust with that if you do it right. And uh, so for instance, I, I've had um, an extremely anti-Catholic individual come into my office week after week and we just sit and go through stuff very patiently very gently and he he says like it's his favorite part of the week even if he doesn't agree with me blah 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 well now i'm able to propose christ and making a decision to him whereas in the beginning without apologetics i couldn't have done that um there's also my time with the prisoner where he just wanted to argue 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 and then i talked about video games and then i introduced him to jesus and then all of a sudden he doesn't argue he just has questions and so I think that's that's like you you were like you were saying you got to understand where the vitriol is coming from, and maybe you need to sidestep it in, in that conversation. Yeah, and I, I think also sometimes people have a list of like twenty things they disagree with, and if you can if you can present one thing masterfully, all, what they're looking for is that you have a well thought out faith, right? A reasoned faith, and it's like oh okay, all right, 
you thought about this more than I, I expected. L- l- let's move on. You know, it's kind of like they trust you all of a sudden. Yeah. So I think that was a good question, though. I, you know, we, we and we'll, we'll talk about it more, I, I guess, especially especially now apologetics are becoming so important uh, as far as like the existence of God, things like that. And, and the question of the church is so, such an important thing right now. Absolutely. So let's dive right into our main topic today. Now that we're 15 minutes in, our main topic is modern times. What does it mean to evangelize in this modern world? And kind of our guideposts for this, you could have uh, Gaudium et Spes from Vatican II, or what we both love is Evangelii Nunciandi, evangelization in our time by um, the great uh, the, an apostolic exhortation of the great Saint Pope Paul VI. You will love it too. It's you know what? Uh, when I first gave my life to the Lord and I went to that tiny Catholic bookstore down the street from my house, I was looking for any book that either had the words like mission, evangelization, uh, missionary, or something like that. And and the two books I got that day were Evangel- Evangelii Nuziandi, Evangelization in the Modern World, and Redemptoris Missio. The, the Redeemer of Man. Yeah, and the, I read those. And it, it had a profound impact on my life because Evangelii Nunziandi is basically um, like if you were going to say, hey, you know, you should read one book on evangelization besides the Bible. This could be that book and it would it could provide a lifetime of help and direction and just wisdom to you because uh, – it, it just covers so much and, and it hits the, you know, just the, the nail on the head of so many issues in evangelization. It's, it's excellent. Absolutely excellent. Yeah. And so like, think, here's just a couple like quotes that I think can really help you as an individual Catholic who wants to understand a Catholic version or vision of evangelization. In paragraph eight, he says, as an evangelizer, Christ, so he's using Christ as the model, Christ, first of all, proclaims a kingdom, the kingdom of God. And this is so important that by comparison, everything else becomes, quote, the rest, which is, quote, given in addition. Only the kingdom, therefore, is absolute, and it makes everything else relative, right? So it's so funny that me and Dave talked about in our own proclamation of the kerygma right it was so heavily like me and jesus ish right that we abandoned the kingdom for the sake of these pithy little statements you know four spiritual laws and all that stuff and then verse nine or verse nine in paragraph nine of evangelia nuziandi he says as the kernel and center of his good news christ proclaims salvation this great gift of god which is liberation from everything that oppresses man but which above all is liberation from sin and of the evil one in the joy of knowing god and being known by him of seeing him and of being given over to him, oh. right? Just think about that. What we so fancily today kind of take for granted, we call oh, the kerygma. Yeah, we got to proclaim the kerygma, the basic gospel message. You got to remember, if you look in Vatican I for the word evangelization or gospel or evangelism or whatever, you won't find a single instance of it. If you look in the Vatican II's documents, you find like 150 instances of it. Like this is a renewed turn to deal with the world in modern times. Right. And so let's talk a little bit about characteristics of modern man that we are dealing with, because it is very different. Okay. Uh, This is a drastically different time than when the apostles were evangelizing. It's, it's a, uh, I'm not saying it's more challenging or less challenging. I'm just saying it's a very different time. And our job is to respond to the culture that we live in. God has you at this moment, at this moment in time in history for a reason and so we need to speak to that moment that we're here in. Uh, so, uh, Gomer, give us some characteristics of, of modern man that I think would help with evangelization. Yeah, I think one of the things that you need to understand is there's essentially three phases of human history. 
there's pagan pre-Christian, there's Christian, and then there's post-Christian. You don't ever get to go back to pre-Christian times, even though right. it becomes very pagan. Right. Right. We call them neo-pagans for a reason, because they ain't the same thing as druids hanging out at Stonehenge or something like that. Right. right. These are hippies hanging out at Stonehenge. <laughs> right. And the reason why we say this is the culture that St. Paul evangelized in, the fastest growing religion at that time, was the cult of the Roman emperor. So when St. Paul is using this language of herald and gospel and evangelization, all that stuff, he's stealing it from the fastest growing religion, which is the worship of Julius or the worship of, of Caesar. And so you have um, at that time this widespread understanding that the material world is governed by spiritual and unseen forces, many of whom are petty, some of whom are evil, right? And it's about the human manipulation of these deities that gets us what we want. And then you hear the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? And within that culture, it's a dethronement of those deities. No one today, because of the scientific revolution, is going to accept those deities necessarily as, you know, this is this is how, like, the real world right. is governed. Like the sun or something like that. Like, a, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't, I mean, there might be plenty of, of weird people who think that the stars actually affect their daily lives right. but i think most people read a horoscope because they think it's funny right um but then when you step back even further you realize that some of this comes directly from what we call post-christianity it's still a christian atmosphere so for instance there's this famous british scholar so famous i forgot his name and he was an atheist and he began studying rome and he was writing a book on ancient rome and as he's reading their great poets as he's reading their historians and as he's reading their the thoughts of their political leaders like julius caesar and whatnot um you end up he says i i was abhorred by these people i i, I was their world was ugly and then he said and then i read saint paul then he said you know i agree you, as an atheist i agree more with the worldview of saint paul right people having right. dignity you know loving slaves and all this stuff he said and then he ended up becoming a christian and and the the big point being the gospel values of Christianity, while not all of them, but overwhelmingly, like the dignity of the individual human person and all this stuff, what do you think is at the background of things like Black Lives Matter, right? Black Lives Matter could not have existed in ancient Rome, right? right? right. Regardless of your political affiliation, just that statement, right? It's like, no, they don't. They're inferior to, you know, right. Rome or, you know, whatever, right? So they lived in a culture of hard and fast inferiority. You know, you can think of the caste system in India. So today we live in, and I think this is brilliantly stated, there's another podcast called This Cultural Moment, where they said it's like we have the kingdom without the king, right? So we have a lot of these gospel values and whatnot kind of woven into our society. We believe every vote should count. We believe that everyone has a voice. You know, we do so in different degrees. You know, we have abortion, which snuffs out those voices and all that stuff. But in varying degrees, that's what we, that's what we believe. In the ancient world, they didn't at all. So there are some benefits of bringing the gospel in this culture, but the other time we're fighting profound and uh, extraordinary individualism, which says that no one can tell me how to live my life except me. We're fighting this notion of autonomy, which is freedom is the most right. supreme value overall. That is, anything that hampers my freedom is something that, that could be a positive evil, even if it's a good thing, like a relationship. So you have commitment issues, all this stuff. You have profound isolation that we're dealing with. And then the last major kind of two things they go together is a mechanistic view of the universe, that it's all just whirling atoms. There is no 
God behind it. There's no such thing as a soul or the spirit. None of that stuff matters. So we have a mechanistic worldview. And then alongside that, we have profound skepticism. Skepticism says, I doubt everything unless you can prove it to me. And when most Western people say prove it to me, they mean through the scientific method. Right. So they'll reject God ipso facto because you can't put him under a microscope. Whereas for me and you, if someone said, hey, I just put God under a microscope, we'd be like, I don't believe in that guy. Yeah, right. You know, so, yeah, right. So these are broad brush uh, strokes of kind of what we're dealing with in the modern world. you got skepticism. You have scientism or, or the mechanistic view of the universe. You have um, this understanding of autonomy as the highest value and individualism that is just that is just radicalized. So, so let's like practically respond to those three real quick. So I think like, I think in particular, what people are going to really encounter when they're out evangelizing is the, the problem of autonomy, right? Okay. That anything that limits your freedom is bad. Freedom is the highest good for people. And I think probably the mistake that we make here is usually by jumping into morality too soon in evangelization. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, you know, all, all the, the pro-lifers out there are going to scream at me and everything, be, but, and, and I was there with you, right? Like I want to just immediately like hit people over the head with morality, what is right and what is wrong. But a lot of times if you're really trying to win a soul over, you cannot jump right in to this is what you're doing. That's wrong. And when I used to, you know, spend hours and hours and hours in front of an abortion clinic talking to women who were walking in sidewalk counseling, I found right away it was a lot easier to start talking to them about their relationship with God than to say things like, you know, this is going to this is going to ruin your life. This is really evil what you're doing and it's going to have all these consequences. If I could just start talking to them about their relationship with God and get them talking, it always worked better. So you know, one of the, you know, I, I think stalwart principles of evangelization is don't confuse morality with with evangelization. Don't confuse those two things, right? Uh, it's a This is a classic thing that parents do for their kids. Um, Absolutely. You know, it, it, you know probably, a, probably a weekly conversation I have with the parishioner is, my son just moved in with his girlfriend and I, you know, called and told him what the catechism said about that and everything. And uh, it's just, it's hard, right? This is a difficult situation because you see this horrible sin, right? And you want to uh, hide that person or, or, or uh, you know, protect that person from it. But the truth is it they can't accept this idea of, of rules without understanding what true freedom is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Right, right. Um, Jesus is the center, right? He's the kernel and center of the good news, right? Um, so if you remove Jesus from it, you just have a moralism. And oftentimes many Catholics experience evangelization as the uncomfortable news that you're not living life correctly, <laughs> rather than the good news that the great gift of God is Christ bringing you this liberation of sin and all this stuff. Um, and so you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So when evangelizing moderns, um, the big thing that we always have to remember is many people might have been brought up in the Catholic Church and not have a vital relationship with Christ. Right. They might not truly know him because they've never actually earnestly, they've never had a, a, a strong prayer life. They've never earnestly prayed. Uh, we all have probably instances in our life, especially when we were young, where we prayed like fr frantically, right? <laughs> you know, oh, God, get that, that, that. and I don't mean, that's not what ardent prayer is like heartfelt, consistent, constant prayer, right? 
And if most people haven't experienced that, then they don't know who Christ is. They can't possibly know who Christ is. Right. I will say this. This is another side of evangelization in modern times when it comes to morality, is that when they see Christians exercising modern gospel values in terms of our love of the poor and social justice, that becomes something that is undeniable if you do it correctly. Because uh, so often when people who have left the church, you know, let's say they're progressive or whatever, um, they view uh, a lot of love of the poor and outreach to the poor only in terms of federal justice, right? So what is the federal (laughs) government doing for this group, that group, whatever? But when they see a Christian engaging in self-sacrificial generosity to a neighbor, especially a stranger, that is something that you can't deny the power of. That's what converted the pagans, right? The famous uh, emperor Justinian the Apostate who left Christianity and tried to repaganize Rome he wrote to the pagan high priest of Rome, see how those Christians take care of even our poor. Right. Right. And so that, and and now we as Christians are like, see how the government, right, the emperor Justinians of today are taking care of even our poor. Right. So it's this notion of radical self-sacrifice, that moral kind of thing, that Mother Teresa kind of thing that can, if witnessed, radically convert people. But I think that you're right, moralizing arguments tend to break down in just, in just more warfare. Um, Another thing that I think people need to keep in mind is when arguing with skeptics, they demand proof. Um, But often, really, what they're saying is, can I believe in all the good things of modern science and believe in the God behind it? Absolutely. And believe in something like the incarnation and the virgin birth. Like, show me a scientist who also believes. I have a friend who just started a website called the catechist scientist. Cool. And you have all these, you have all these like Bishop Barron type people who are on the theology philosophy side of it. And you don't have a lot of scientists on the science side of it. And she said, what do I need to do? And I said, just be Catholic, but proclaim your love of the sciences because I can point people to you who are teenagers who have never heard of structural and computational biology. And here she is getting her doctorate at one of the most elite medical schools uh, in in our country at Baylor College of Medicine. And she's amazing, the catechist scientist. And we talked for like an hour and she's like, I want to evangelize through science. And I was like, oh my gosh, I love you. But a lot of it is just seeing the witness that those two are compatible because that's that skepticism. I don't believe in God. I believe in science is a stupid thing to say when you actually know the full thing, but it is written into the fabric of our culture. So you need to be aware of that. Yeah, and I so I would say with with regards to the skeptic, the mechanistic view of, of of society, I don't let the science intimidate you, okay? Because, uh, the, like what kids are learning is a complete and utter mechanistic view of society. Like the perfect example would be like, look, we're not a, a human is just a collection of cells, right? That has to do what it has to do. The sexual urges, the you know any kind of those urges, it's just a natural part of life. There's nothing they can do about it, okay? That falls down quickly with just a little bit of philosophy. Okay, so yep. so so don't be intimidated by this. Uh, now you know obviously uh, you're not going to pick a fight with a physicist who's got a PhD in physics, uh, who's you know an avowed atheist. Let let you know let an expert take care of that. But but for the most part, when you're evangelizing out in the world, a little bit of philosophy goes a long way. And and there oh so so far yeah. A long way. So, so individualism, take that one, Gomer. Okay. So with individualism, um, 
It's really funny. There's a, a book that's very popular right now. It's called Enlightenment Now. It's actually a terrible book. Um, the guy's basically saying, oh, no, we're falling back into the Dark Ages because people are grabbing after their religion and their tribalism <laughs> and all this stuff. If only we could recover what we had in the Enlightenment. <laughs> and then all the things he praises in the Enlightenment were actually renaissance things born oh. from people of faith. Oh, that's funny. It's so funny. There's this amazing uh, philosopher out at Hebrew University in Tel Aviv. And he does a full takedown, and he's like, "This, this all, all this stuff comes from a Judeo-Christian worldview, not from an atheistic Enlightenment worldview." Yeah, and um, it's really interesting. But this guy, um, I think his name's Pinker. Um, he uh, talks about how uh, he he wrote a commentary on the profound isolation that adults, especially millennials, experience today in the world. That you know, white men are killing themselves more than any other group. One of the big factors is profound loneliness. Um, most men uh, and women who are adults say that they don't have friends or they only have like one friend in their lives at all. You know, it, it's, it's really kind of shocking. Um, and so there's this profound isolation. And he, in defending this notion of individualism and autonomy, he goes so far as to say like, okay, that's fine. That's the price we pay for being free. Right. And it's like, so killing ourselves is the price we pay for being free. Maybe the most progressive thing we could do is a U-turn because we're about to go off a cliff, right? All right, right. And his sister is an academic, and she writes about the exact opposite. She takes the opposite side, and she's writing as a sociologist against all of this stuff and how individualism is destroying us. Wow. So a buddy of mine wrote to her and is like, what do you see here? And she's like, yep, yeah, that's my brother. He thinks I'm dead wrong. Um, but this is a, a competing system of values, right? And that's why I think it's so funny that at the the hipster core, right, you go to these hipster restaurants, goodbye Applebee's, hello food truck park, and you have these park benches where people are sitting at big tables instead of isolated booths right. and all this stuff. It's like we want to recover a sense of community, but it's still tied to consumerism. And so it's like I as an individual make a choice to be around people who maybe I don't know, strangers, whatever, um, but I think that there is this element within individualism that can be harnessed for the good because our individualism is ultimately rooted in, and I would say three basic facts. Right. Fact number one, the Christian doctrine of the imago dei, the image of God. Every man, every woman, every person, regardless of race, tongue, you know, background, color, whatever, you are made in the image of God. Uh, uh, Aristotle believed slaves were incapable of being happy because... They were born that way. They were made to be slaves. Okay. So as Christian Christians, you know, you can read this in, in the New Testament. Slaves were Christian brothers. Women were, you know, equals, right? All this stuff. Right. So then you have um, the Imago Dei. The second thing is the fall. The fall unites us. It unites us in disuniting us. Like we all have sin in common. No man or no woman is perfect. And then the last is redemption. Everyone was was saved right. by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or everyone, excuse me, could be saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He died once for all. And that notion at the heart of a Christian civilization can say, even if someone is a condemned prisoner, even if someone is is in utter poverty, homeless on the streets, Jesus Christ knows you, loves you, and died yeah. for you. And that is why we have something like a liberal democracy where individuals can vote and they're self-determined. So there is elements of godliness even hidden in this rampant thing called radical individualism that we can use for proposing the gospel.
and th- those elements that are hidden, uh, they speak to a deeper point that should give you a little bit of peace. And that is this, no matter how opposed someone is to Christianity, you have to understand that deep down, it is what they want. It is what they most desire. It is the answer to all their questions. And you, so you, you have to continually remember this because no matter how much someone rejects it, no matter how much someone rails against it, deep down, what they are searching for is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they might not know it. They might have rejected it over and over again, but have peace in that, that all things are cooperating together to work to bring that soul right back to the Lord. Uh, and so no matter how hardened they are, how formed they are in modernist uh, thinking, uh, it's, okay. It's, it's okay. God is still working in that soul, yeah. and you're cooperating. And speaking to that illustration that we had in the very beginning of the show about the different, <clears throat> the different stages of human history, pre-Christian, Christian, post-Christian, it also co- corresponds to the Catholic Church's understanding of evangelization and catechesis. So the original evangelization, what we call the mission ad gentes, that is to the pre-Christian societies. So people and people groups who have never heard of Jesus Christ have never had the gospel proclaimed, right? There's this missionary tells a story of there has never been a white person that has gone into this jungle to talk to this people group out in the middle of nowhere, right? In Southeast Asia, they get a group, they're going out there, they're going to reach them for Christ and they show up and there's a Coca-Cola machine. And it's like, wow, Coke has beat us here, right? Right. Um, But so pre-Christian societies correspond to the mission ad gentes, to the nations, people who have never heard the gospel. Uh, Christian nations need catechesis, right? So the Christian who has already heard the gospel and accepted it and given themselves over to Christ and been baptized and received the sacraments, they need catechesis and a deepening and maturing of that Christian faith. But the post-Christian world, this is where the phrase the new evangelization comes from. And this is for people who live in post-Christian societies or who themselves are lapsed away from Catholic practice or Christian practice. That it's elements of it of their culture have the gospel in it, Christmas carols and all this stuff. Yet there is a profound misunderstanding, rejection, or just a lack of faith in the gospel. Um, in their lives. And so the new evangelization can't use the same methods that St. Paul used in Athens or in Rome, or that a missionary would use in India or Southeast Asia or parts of Africa that have never heard the gospel. And so that's a, a good interpretive key that here in these modern times, we have to propose the new evangelization, the same gospel with new methods, ardor and expression. Yeah. And I, I, I would argue that it's, it, it, in a sense is, is more difficult. Okay. It's just, it's just, I think it is. Yeah. Much more difficult. If someone has, has thought that they've wrestled with the gospel, it's much more difficult than someone who's like, I have no idea what it is. I have no clue at all. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So I think it's really important to remember that there are universal principles that apply to all evangelization. And we're working through those in this, in this show, in this podcast, you know, but, when you're talking about modern man, right, there are nuances that we need to pick up in our evangelization. And I would guess that if anyone's been out there evangelizing and has been unsuccessful, a lot of the things that we have talked about that we've mentioned, you're probably thinking right now, like, oh, yeah, see, that's where I went wrong with this, or that's what happened here. That's the situation here. So our hope would be that you'd start to become more nuanced in all this. One quick thought, you know, I mentioned just a little bit of philosophy uh, can help a lot. Uh, I just want to make a recommendation of a book. It's just it's it's called Introduction to Philosophy by Daniel Sullivan. 
And it's it's one of these books. I it's like one of the five books I read every single year. Okay, it's super simple. A high school. I think I read it for the first time in seventh grade. So it, it was a long time ago. Uh, so it's very simple, and it teaches a lot of a lot of philosophy that um, you know the kids just aren't getting in schools and things like that. So it can really help you to become a, a more well-rounded evangelist. All right, so this has been Every Knee Shall Bow, episode number nine. We're going to take a quick break. I just want to give you a reminder to go on to iTunes, which is the boss of all bosses when it comes to podcasts, and give us a five-star review if you feel like we've earned it, and write a little review um, so that this way the algorithms of iTunes can help propose this to other people and help train Catholics in evangelization. If you want to email us, email us at bow at ascensionpress.com. Com. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be right back. And if you're looking for a way to learn more about your Catholic faith, I invite you to check out the Ascension Presents YouTube channel. You're going to find tons of free videos featuring Catholic presenters like Matt Frad, Leah Darrow, Jackie Bobby Angel, and Emily Wilson. Go to youtube.com slash ascension presents. That's youtube.com slash ascension presents. And if you like what you see, please share and subscribe. All right, we're back to uh, Every Knee Shall Bow, talking about evangelization in the modern world today. Uh, we hope that you know this episode has really helped you to kind of understand the nuances of, of navigating evangelization today. I want to make a quick plug here. Uh, Gomer and I are, are out on the road often. We are doing evangelization trainings, parish missions, things like that. And we'd love to come and visit you if you'd be interested in bringing one or both of us in. Uh, you can contact us through uh, the uh, Every Knee Shall Bow at ascensionpress.com. Uh, Gomer also has a website called layevangelist.com, and you can get me through thesinnersguide.com. We'd love to come out and uh, help you learn about evangelization, learn about the Lord, learn about spiritual warfare, uh, you name it, uh, and we'd love to come out and share our life with you in, in a sense. Um, also, as Gomer mentioned before, please rate our podcasts. Uh, that It's important uh, that we get this message out there. Let's talk about some practical tips now, Gomer. Are you ready for practical tips? Oh, yeah. Everyone's favorite, take five. Everyone's <laughs> favorite. Dave, why don't you start us off? Okay. Um, number one, number one, I want you to uh, just read the document we talked about during this episode called Evangelii Nunciandi. Now, it's long, and it's uh, it can get weighty at times, although it's pretty simple. Um, so just start reading it. Start reading it. And you can find it for free on the internet, right, if you just Google evangelization. Uh, in the modern world, evangelization of modern man. Okay, uh, Pope Paul VI is the writer. You can find it at the Vatican website. Uh, it's it, it's an excellent excellent read. You will you will absolutely love it. And number two, uh, so piggybacking off of what we said last week, which is to pray for someone on your parish staff or to pray for the parish staff. I would encourage you to take it up a notch and to start fasting for that individual person um, or the parish staff as a whole. So fast. For the conversion and the sanctification of your parish staff. Great. Number three. Okay. Uh, one of the one of the statements that Pope Paul VI makes in this document is he says that the Holy Spirit is the principal agent of evangelization, and and if you, I mean, it might not mean much to you right now, but if you really start to think about that, it makes all the difference in the world to evangelization. It makes all the difference in the world to a missionary. So what I want you to do is kind of start to foster 
you know, we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, start to foster a relationship with the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, which most of us don't even think about it that way. Uh, and so there's a, a great prayer by St. Augustine. It's the, the prayer to the Holy Spirit by St. Augustine. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's very simple. It just says, breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love, but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then. O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. Uh, just add that to your daily prayer life. Add that simple prayer. Uh, you can find it on the internet real quick uh, and start to foster that relationship with the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to piggyback again and tell you to read 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is very powerful for understanding, uh, proclaiming the gospel in our modern age. Here's the words of St. Paul in just the first five verses. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be urgent in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, and exhort, be unfailing in patience and in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own likings, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. As for you, always be steady, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I love that. That's just the first part of chapter four. So read 2 Timothy chapter four. I love it. I love it. Uh, okay, finally, number five. There's there's another quote. There's another quote uh, <laughs> that just kind of like, boom, you hit it and it's like about to just knock you over when you read it in Evangelii Nuziandi. Okay, it says, evangelizing is in fact the grace and vocation proper to the church. Her deepest identity, she exists in order to evangelize. When I first read that, it, it took my breath away. And then about two seconds later, I said, what? I mean, is that what... Is that what it seems like when you look at the church today? Does it seem like we are a church that exists for one reason, to evangelize? She exists in order to evangelize. And so what I want you to do is, this is like, uh, again, like I said before, this is like big boy evangelization here, okay? We're going to start really thinking at uh, the different principles and, and, and the philosophies out there that have to do with evangelization in the church. I want you to just sit back, maybe take 20 minutes after your prayer time, Okay. And I want you to look at your involvement in the church, your parish, your local diocese, and I want you to start to think about what parts of it reflect this statement. What parts of it say, yes, this is a church that exists in order to evangelize. And then the opposite of that, what, what parts of it are kind of saying the opposite of that? What are the things that say, well, no, the church has maybe gotten away from this idea that she exists in order to evangelize, or maybe it's gotten cloudy because of this or something like that. I want you to start thinking in that sense, right? That uh, what is the church doing and what is what are we not doing? And do it in a local sense, since you have that experience, just reflect on what what that quote means and how it's being played out right in front of you. That's it. Those take fives will keep you busy this week. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Yeah, those are busy. Those yeah, are busy right. ones. Um, and the beautiful thing about this is, again, we're talking about formation spiritually, not just, hey, here's what you say and how you say it. These are the things that condition your response in any situation, how you balance apologetics with evangelization, all of the different moments that contain bringing a soul to our Lord. So once again, I'm Mike Gormley, and I'm joined by my buddy, David Van Vickle, and this has been Every Knee Shall Back. See ya.